Um, I, I was thinking about this recently, especially as I was reading this. Has anybody ever been through an inheritance battle? Um, some of you, yeah, some of you are laughing and some of you are crying about this. Ha, has anyone ever, do you, have you ever been through that time where maybe grandparents have died or maybe you're in the stage of life where your parents have died and, and you're fighting with siblings over furniture? Has anyone ever done this? Just, okay, yeah. Okay, I know that some of you out there have gone through this scenario. So my, my grandmother owned an antique store in Wichita Falls, Texas. And, and my, my granddaddy was a, a, a doctor and she needed something, uh, he needed for her to have something to do. Um, and so she had this antique store in downtown Wichita Falls, Texas. It was this little bitty house, um, had a bunch of rooms in it. And each room was set up in a certain way with these beautiful antiques. And we would go and we'd spend time there as little um, rugrats and stuff and be threatened, you know, with our lives, should we break anything in that place. And so, you know, at the time I had this great distaste and hatred of antiques because it was like, it's summer. I'm going to see my grandparents and we have to sit in an antique store while my grandmother chain smokes and sits behind her desk and, um, you know, and yells at us, don't go in that room, you know, stay away from the Wedgwood uh, stuff like that. And, you know, it was, she was a lovely woman. She was like this tall, very feisty. Um, grandmother is what we called her. Um, she didn't want to be grandma, didn't want like granddaddy. He wanted to be granddaddy and, and she wanted to be grandmother. Yes, grandmother, um, type stuff. And so, and she was a wonderful person. Her name was Pearl. She was great. Um, but she had high heel slippers because um, she was like seriously four feet tall or something. My granddaddy was six three, and so she had these high heel slippers. But um, so we we have all these antiques, and and I didn't appreciate antiques at the time. But later on in life, I I've, have this great appreciation for antiques. I, I love I love the fact that it's been around forever. Some of you are IKEA people. I don't understand you people. Um, you know how, why would you take seventy two hours to make a table? Um, when someone did it 150 years ago and it looks better, uh, you know, so it's that type of stuff. I, I love the reusableness of antiques. I love the history and the story behind, um, some of these pieces of furniture. All this to say, my parents have a lot of them because of their connection to my mom, to my grandmother. And they, they had received these antiques. My dad and mom both love them. And so their house is full of these just amazingly beautiful pieces. And, some years ago, the battle started. The battle over who gets what when they die. And this is not a battle you necessarily want to have in front of your living parents, right? Hey, when you two are gone, because they're still alive, my dad will be 80 this year, and they will be uh, celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary this year. And, and, and they're doing very well. They're very active. In fact, they're on their way to Kentucky right now to do like a week of a bourbon trail um, in Kentucky. Um, I know, how cool is that, right? I, um, to celebrate my uncle's 60th birthday. Um, but they're, you know, so this is the kind of stuff, the life that they lead. But they have these beautiful pieces. And one of them specifically is this um, sideboard. Now, this sideboard is um, a tremendously long. Um, and it came from a yacht that used to sail around um, Europe. In different places, and we we know that it is we know the story behind it. My grandparents bought it when they were over in Europe one time, and they shipped it back. And the drawers is just an intricately, you know, the, the woodwork on it is just beautiful. And there's this marble top. It's a solid piece of marble that goes across, and it's three inches thick. 
um, this marble. So marble's heavy, right? It's very heavy. These drawers, they have these little catches on them, so you have to pull it and then pull it again because when it was on a yacht, you didn't want the drawers just to open up. So it's just this beautiful piece, and and I've loved it forever. And so does my sister-in-law. Um, and my sister-in-law and I have a, um, a great relationship. Um, and she is an only child. Um, and, and so she operates in only childness. I am the baby of my family. So I operate as the baby of my family. <clears throat> She's like, we want that for our house. I'm like, no, you're not even in our family. You know, maybe by law, but you're not one of us. You're Crocker. You kept your maiden name too. So that doesn't even count. You know, and we have these kinds of conversations at Christmas. It's a very holy and blessed time. Um, so, so we have this, this argument already going on. And, you know, there's, there's two things I have going against me. One, I don't think that my 72, 75-year-old home is actually structurally sound enough to take the weight of this piece of furniture. Um, and the other thing is I really don't have a wall big enough to take it. You know, it's like we would take it and then we would put it in front of a door. That door is no longer usable. And, but I, I won, right. It is, is really the essence of it. Aha! It looked better in your house cause you have a bigger house, but you didn't get it. Um, so there's these arguments that go on over furniture. I remember actually when, um, my, when my granddaddy died, uh, and, and there's all this, this beautiful furniture and, and, and antiques and stuff that my mom and my aunt Judy, who is um, also not really a member of the family she married in, um, got into some arguments over stuff. And if you know my mother, my mother is the sweetest person to have ever walked the face of the earth. She is just so sweet. The fact that she raised three very sarcastic and um, really quick-witted and darting-tongued children is only evidenced is because of my father. But, you know, she tried really hard, basically, to have us turn out like her. Um, and she's just very sweet. And, and my aunt Judy is a little feisty and, and she, and she will tell you that she's feisty. And, um, and so they got in this, and it got kind of hurtful, um, over some stuff. And it actually took my uncle Greg and, and my mom a little while to begin communicating again. This is years ago when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, and so it was a long time ago, but it took them a while to get over this, this scar, and it, and it was over furniture, and it was over antiques, and it was over stuff that's going to burn, ultimately. Yet there it was. Was this just... Ugh. And some of you may have gone through that, too, over silly stuff. There's a story in Luke, chapter 12, where um, there's a guy in a crowd, and he shouts out a request to Jesus. And he's talking about inheritance. Now, let me tell you a little something about inheritance and the time that Jesus lived. Now, in, in the time that Jesus lived, land was very important. Where your land was, how much land you had, it was hugely important, both economically and religiously. It had, it had a lot of ties into it of, of the importance of having this land. And an inheritance, when, when your father died, it was really important to find your place in that inheritance. The thing is, though, in this time, the inheritance would go to the eldest son. When the dad died, everything went to the eldest son. When the eldest son is born, he receives the blessing of the father. The rest of them, you know, you're great. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau, right? They're twins, but Esau comes out first. But then Jacob steals Esau's blessing. 
It's huge. So this inheritance thing right here, this, this request that this guy makes, he says, and someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. This is a big deal. It's a big deal for who gets the land. And in, in essence, this guy's out of luck, right? He's been working his entire life for his father in his father's business. He has been sweating. He has been toiling away, blood, sweat, and tears, all of that to get his father's estate to where it is. Now that his father is gone, so is his place in the estate. You're gone. It's your brother's now. It's like one day you're a part of this inheritance. You're a part of this family. You're a part of this family business. You have all of this stuff. You have all of this blessing. You have this place in your society, in your community. The next day, nothing. And so uh, I think this statement right here by this guy is often overlooked to get to what Jesus says. And what Jesus says is very important. But what this guy says, I think is huge. And it's huge in disciple making and in becoming a disciple. Because if, if we take the question for a greedy sense, if we take it on this, uh, like, oh man, I just want what's mine. I've been working for that stuff. Half of that's mine. Have him divide it. Tell him to divide it. Jesus, my brother's not playing fair type thing. That's one, that's one way to look at it. But if you read it from a standpoint of desperation, it changes things. Think about it this way. This guy is standing in a village surrounded by people he knows. This guy is standing, it says, in a crowd. From, someone called from the crowd. So there's a bunch of people milling around Jesus. Jesus is in the little block of teaching. He's doing some teaching here. People are gathered around him to listen to this rabbi speak. They sense something amazing, something great, something transformational is happening. This guy is looking around. Maybe his brother is standing right here next to him. Maybe he has other siblings around. Maybe there's some cousins around. Maybe his mom. But his friends, people know him. It's not like it's the city of San Antonio and you go downtown and you're surrounded by a bunch of people and you don't know anyone. It's more like the city of Alamo Heights. And you go to the center of Alamo Heights and the people of Alamo Heights surround you. And you're like, well, I know those people. I see those people all the time. There's some of my cousins over there. Let's face it, right? The, the family tree of Alamo Heights isn't very branched. So there's there's, there's, you have a lot of friends and family around. I thought that was funny. Um, 930 doesn't get that kind of humor. It just comes out at 11. Uh, so, and so you, you, you have people around you. So he's standing there in this village with these people that he has grown up with, these people he spent you know, his formative years with, he skinned knees with, he's climbed trees with, he sat under the olive tree with, and, and all these different things. He's thrown rocks, done all this stuff. Here are all these people. And he shouts out in the middle of all of them. Something that goes against everything they know. Why? Because he's desperate. Teacher, tell my brother to give me something. If you don't look at it from greedy, but you look at it from desperation, the courage of this man astounds me. Let's bring it closer to home. We sit in a community where people you see on Sundays, 
you see them. Some of you are related to one another in this room. Some of you live nearby one another. You see friends, you see neighbors, you know different groups and different pockets of people in this room. It would be like, as I am delivering a sermon, someone stands up and says, Michael, my wife and I can't go on any longer. We need help. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if someone actually dared to do that here? Can you imagine if we lived in a community where that was okay and not only okay, it was encouraged? Because you, you've been coming every Sunday, you and your spouse, and you come all the time and, and you see people and you're like, oh, good morning. Hey, good morning. Happy Sunday. Praise Jesus. Let's sing our songs and it's great. And we stand when we're supposed to. And then we sit down when we're supposed to. And we bow our heads and pray because that's how you're supposed to pray and, and all these different things. And then you leave and you shake my hand on the way out and you're like, have a great week, Michael. Hey, you too. That's great. And all the while inside, you're just crushed. All the while inside, you're like, somebody just ask me, somebody just give me a little hand here. I'm at the end of my rope. But here's the problem. We don't know that. I don't know what's going on in your world. Yeah, we do live in a kind of a community that likes to talk, right? And so sometimes we know things that are going on in people's lives, but we pretend like we don't know. And they pretend like they know that you know, I know that you know that I know that you know that something's going on in my life. But I'm going to pretend like you don't know so that we can just say hi, shake hands and move on down the road. We live in a society of facades. We live in a society of falsehoods. We want people to see us for what we want them to see, not for who we truly are. And consequently, what happens is we miss the blessing of community. We miss the blessing of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We miss the opportunity to connect with someone who has been where we currently are. Think about it this way. Somebody comes in here and they're sitting with their spouse right now and they're going through this tough and difficult time and they just want so bad for other people to know that it's not going well and they need help and they're at their end of the rope. And maybe they find the courage and they stand up and they say, that is us. And then other people around the room go, oh my gosh, we have been there. Come, come talk to us about this. Let us be with you. Let us walk with you. Maybe some of you are going through something right now where you've just gotten a diagnosis and it scares you to the very core of who you are. You don't know what's going to happen from this point forward. I was just diagnosed with cancer and I'm scared. But I can't let people know that it's Sunday. But maybe if you stand up and you say, I'm scared because I was diagnosed with this, people around this room who are suffering through that, who have defeated that, who are victorious through those things and go, hey, I know what you're feeling. I'm there. I've been there. Come talk to me. Maybe you have a child at school and that child at school is going off the stray path and they're a little bit into drugs and alcohol and they're experiencing college in a different way than you would have loved them to. And you don't know how to correct them and you don't know what to say to them because they won't listen to you any longer, you feel. And you're at your end of your rope and you feel like I just have to cut them out of my life because they're never going to go the way that I think. And maybe tough love is the way to go right now. Well, maybe you stand up and you say, my son, 
isn't away too many drugs. Any drugs isn't the drugs. And he's into alcohol and he's not going to class and his life is going down the toilet. And I get to say, hey, I've been there. I know what it's like to spin out of control with cocaine and marijuana and alcohol. Let me talk to your boy. Let me talk to you. But if we don't find the courage like this man to stand in the crowd of our family and friends and to shout out, I need help. We're not going to get it. Now, what Jesus says is this friend who made me a ju- friend who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that. And he said, beware, don't be greedy for what you don't have. Real life is not measured by how much we own. I don't think he's talking to this guy who said something. I think he's talking to his brother. And he gave an illustration. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. In fact, his barns were full to overflowing. So he said, I know I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store everything. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get it all? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. The key word here for me is relationship. When we build facades and when we put have on this public persona, we go into the world and we see people at church or we see people at some function. We run into them at H-E-B and we've just left a doctor and we're just devastated by the news that we just heard. And we see them in the dog food aisle and we're like, oh, you got a dog too? That's great. Okay, see you later. When we put up these facades, what we are banking on is that we can handle it ourselves, that we can build barns big enough to store everything we need to take care of it. When in truth, what we're missing is the relationship. In truth, we are being fools, as Jesus calls us. We are banking on ourselves instead of him and the kingdom of God. We are banking on the things that we bring to the table rather than the kingdom of heaven and our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not strong enough to go through it alone. I'm not strong enough. To, 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 to marry, uh, to have a, a woman like Jenna be my wife for more than 15 years. And let me tell you, she's, I married way up. You don't have to laugh that hard, Ashley. She got a pretty good deal too, I'd like to say. Jenna and I could not function without expressing our hurts and our pains to people we know and love. Corbin um, got his tonsils and adenoids out on Tuesday. And he gets his convalescing from his mother. They're very needy. They don't take it quietly. You know, I will not go quietly into this convalescence. This is how he calls us. He bangs on the closest wall to him. And we have to come, and he's trying to do sign language with us. He doesn't know sign language. <laughs> Keeps doing that. I'm like, well, that means more. So, I mean, you, you want more? He's like, that means actually means he, it hurts. Something hurts. So he, he's been trying to sign all this stuff to us. Um, two days ago, I told him that I would no longer communicate to him unless he spoke to me. 
I'm like, I'm done. I'm done communicating with you, dude. Unless you talk to me, because I've heard you talk today. I'm out. He, uh, he wrote a letter, a uh, note. He was writing stuff down as well. He's in first grade, so he can write, but his spelling is wonderfully funny. Um, and, and so he, he wrote this note because he, the, the, the doctor said that he could have pizza. And we were both like, wow, that's okay. I thought it was just like ice cream and applesauce for like the next 10 years. Um, so he's have pizza. And so Jenna was going to get him a Little Caesars ready to go pizza because he finally said he was ready to eat. Um, and, and we go towards Little Caesars and um, he, he box or no, they, uh, she called the doctor and just to make sure. And the doctor said, no. Or the nurse goes, no, no, he can't have pizza. Who told you that? Well, the doc, doctor did. The guy who cut his you know, stuff out. No, um, he can't have that. Okay. And then they saw Taqueria Vallarta, which is uh, right next to it. They're, oh, well, can he have a, a guacamole rice and bean taco, which is the Corbin special? And um, she's like, well, yes, but you have to make sure that the rice is very well cooked. I'm like, probably it's been sitting there for It's probably well cooked and it's going to be immersed in beans and guacamole. So just go right down. Right. But he can't have the tortilla. (laughs) Devastated. They get home. She's bought him two tacos. He goes into his room. Our Lucy, the, the, the labradoodle has thrown up in the car. Cause you know, um, and so Jenna's out there cleaning that up and I go out to bring a, a trash can to her and everything. And I walk back inside and there's a little table by her back door and there's a note on it and says, I will never eat again. As God is my witness, I shall never eat again. You know, I'm like, oh, my goodness. This guy is amazingly dramatic. I mean, I don't know where he gets it from. The inability to control pain from his mother, but the drama from me, I get it. Uh, and, and just I, I, I love that. I still have and I'm keeping that note. Forever, you know, when, on the day of his, his wedding, I'm just going to slide it to him, you know, are you going to eat wedding cake? You know, just periodically, I'm just going to show it to him. Um, that's the kind of loving father I am. Uh, but so here's the deal. We have been at our, our wits end with Corbin. He, uh, he kicked Jenna the other night. He was kicking at her because he did not want the medicine. And I don't know if you've seen him lately, but he's almost five feet tall and 90 pounds at seven. He's big, but he's still seven. And so he doesn't get everything and he's in a lot of pain. And so he was kicking at her and it just made me angry. I'm like, and Jenna looks at me. She goes, you need to leave. It was four 30 in the morning too, by the way. So I'm like going back to bed, you know, and Lucy's in bed with me and she's like walking all over the place. I'm like, this is great. And, and we just keep hitting these things. Thankfully, we don't keep it to ourselves. We have friends who have had children who have gone through this. And we call them. Because I had this surgery done in high school. And I'm like, dude, suck it up, man. It's, it's harder when you're older. I went through it. To a seven-year-old. You know, he's like, that means a lot to me, Dad. Thanks for your concern and care. He wrote that down. Um, but we have our friends and we're like, look, we, we can't handle Corbin right now we because we also have the grace factor and when corbin is upset grace is upset when corbin freaks out grace freaks out and so it's not as if we are just dealing with the one child we are dealing with both of them 
And so we call our friends and we're like, hey, we can't handle this right now. Help. And they're like, hey, bring one of them to me. So we take one. Lessening the, their strength. And we can deal. If we don't reach out, if people ask us, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's great. Corbin had his tonsils and adenoids out on Tuesday, and he has just recovered so well. It's awesome. It's just like he is a superhero, right? I mean, he's already eating steak. It's just great. He doesn't even cut it. He just, you know, that type of stuff. Oh, we're fine. How's it going at your house? Oh, it's going just great. Things are wonderful at our house. If we just do that, one, we're never going to get the help that we need. And two, we're, we're going to prevent people from being disciples themselves. I don't know what's going on in your life. And right now you may be one of those people where you're like, this is the best my life has ever been. Like our marriage is so amazing. Our kids are smarter than everyone else's kids. I can beat up every dad in the neighborhood. You know, you might be at that point in your life right now. And God bless you for it. Your job right now is to be open and to let some of us take our walls down. For some of us to take, take our facade down and say, this is who I am. This is where we are. We're struggling right now with this. We just got this diagnosis in our family. We just lost this member. Our child is doing this. Whatever it is, wherever you are, it's that time to take the wall down. To find the courage like this guy did and to stand in the middle of a group of friends and family and say, I need help. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care if you think it's funny that I ask for help. I don't care if you're going to judge me because it's not your job to judge anyway. I need help. And what I read from the scripture is that God put people on this earth to help me. And they're you people. My brothers and sisters. Fellow sons and daughters. We live in a community that looks poorly on the guy who stands up and says, I need help. We live in a community that tells you, you need to look this way and dress this way and act this way and go to these events and go to these functions. And everything needs to be in place. And you need to be this type of person. If we are going to make disciples, if we are going to move into this way of life, a community that accepts one another for who we are and helps one another along the path and the journey, wherever they are, we've got to tear down these walls. To steal a line from Ronald Reagan, tear down that wall of fear, of insecurity. Tear down that wall of wondering what people are going to think about you if you stand and you go get prayer on a Sunday morning. Tear down that wall that says, if I stand up in the middle of everyone and I walk over to get prayer, people are going to go, ooh, I wonder what's going on in their house. Let's start guessing. Or maybe people going, <laughs> I knew he needed to go for prayer. Tear down those walls. Tear down those walls so that you can receive healing. Tear down those walls so that you can receive love. Tear down those walls so that you can experience the kingdom of God. 
The worship team's coming up again. And we're leading into one more song as we do the blessing and then another song. And, and you're welcome to stay for all of that time, any of that time. Our prayer team is over there on the cross wall section. And they're there to pray with you. I encourage you, I challenge you, if you find yourself today, and as I have been preaching, you have said, why is he talking to me?